Well, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is one of those verses that Christians love to memorize and put plaques on their walls and maybe put them on our coffee mugs in the morning and for good reason. It's a great summary verse, and it's a reminder that all of the things you're going to have to make decisions on in your life, everything that you're going to do, you do genuinely have to do them for a reason. We're not just little AI bots, robots running around, just our mechanisms firing that nothing we do would have any genuine or real intent. The Lord wants for us to give him our worship and our praise and to set ourselves to do all things for the glory of God. That means that if you're raising kids, the reason you feed them and give them a comfy place to sleep and educate them and discipline them is not just so that you're not miserable. And it's not even just so that they would be happy And it's not even just owing to the fact that you love them and you want to do those things. That's wonderful. No, that must be done out of a desire to bring glory to Christ. Work, at play, whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. The whole point that I'm hoping to drive home this morning that I think comes from the text that we see today, and I'm just going to try to show that to you in a few moments is that everything you do must be done with right thinking and a desire for God to get all glory and all praise. And only when we're doing that will we be able to access the real and genuine joy and rejoicing that is the indelible result. And I hope to show you that from the text today. So I want the greatest possible joy for you, and I think that that greatest possible joy can only come from what must precede it, namely everything being focused upon and centered on the glory of God. If you have your Bibles with you today, please turn to John chapter 3. I'm going to be in verses 22 through 30. So far as we've been in John, and specifically John 3, we've just wrapped up many weeks in a single conversation in that chapter between Jesus and a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. Here we're going to cover the next conversation in John chapter 3 between John the Baptist and his disciples. I'm going to read the text, pray, and then we'll unpack a few verses at a time. Starting in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aenon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Lord, as we endeavor to walk through 
these wonderful verses. Uh, please expose error in our thinking. God, please help us to overcome those obstacles. Lord, it is my sincere desire as a pastor, as a preacher this morning, that I would be a great help and service to my brothers and sisters who are the audience of this sermon in much the same way that John's disciples were the audience of this teaching. And so we want glory for you, right thinking for us. Uh, Lord, we want worship and praise to you, and we need your help to accomplish that. So I ask for it. Uh, the Holy Spirit would do that work in our hearts and that you would receive all glory and praise in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's go back again to the beginning of the passage I just covered in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean wilderness, countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, real quick, we just know that Jesus had finished up a conversation with Nicodemus in Jerusalem. The end of chapter 22 says that's where Jesus was. That's where Nicodemus would have approached Jesus in the middle of the night. So that conversation concludes, and Jesus heads down from the, uh, the precipice of the uh, city of Jerusalem, which would have been about 2,500 feet above sea level, down to the Jordan River area, most likely, uh, which is right next to the uh, lowest place on the planet. On the surface of the earth, the Dead Sea is 1,400 feet below sea level. The Jordan River exits right into it. And so Jesus makes a 4,000-foot descent from Jerusalem down to the Jordan there, where he is spending time with his disciples and baptizing. He's baptizing. It's about a 20-mile trek between those two points. Now, we find out in chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, and I will spend way more time on that when we get there in a couple weeks, that Jesus, I'll, re I'll read it, Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. But a parenthesis is given to us there, and it says this, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So I think that it is clear that John... The evangelist, the author of this text, is making sure we know Jesus didn't perform the actual baptisms his disciples did, and there's probably great significance in that. Can you imagine if Jesus is the one who baptized you, how high and mighty you might feel, special commission you might feel? Paul even points to this kind of error in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He's like, listen, I'm glad I didn't baptize many of you because you'd start thinking you're my disciple specially and uniquely. And so perhaps that's why we see Jesus didn't do that in a unique way. But John in chapter 1 tells us that as John the Baptist is baptizing people, he points to the coming Christ. And John the Baptist says, I baptize with water, but the one who is coming, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. You might remember that was his language. Now, a question for you, has that happened yet? The answer is no, it hasn't happened a dozen chapters from now, Jesus will still be saying, that's yet to happen. The Holy Spirit will be sent. He will be poured out upon you, but not yet. So the Holy Spirit has not yet baptized these people. That will actually happen in the event of Pentecost in Acts 2, after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, his ascension. That's when that'll take place. So what, what kind of baptism is this that his disciples are performing? And the answer is, it's probably much like the baptism that's being done by John, a baptism of repentance, a purification kind of symbol of my sins uh, being no more, submitting and following God more fully. Here we see, even before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, even before that, 
Baptism is already an inseparable part of Christian life. While it will certainly take on a new theological significance and nature after the birth of the church in Acts 2, baptism is already there with the people. If you want to follow Christ, how do you do that? Get in the water. That's what they would say right then and there. That would be the point a person would say, I'm making that proclamation and I'm doing that through this ritual. Now, baptism does not save. But everywhere that Christianity spreads, so does the ritual of baptism. In heaven, with the exception of uh, the, the people like the thief on the cross who didn't make it to the water between belief and death, or maybe very small select groups of Christians in history like the Quakers, the overwhelming majority of believers that will fill the new heavens and the new earth will have been baptized people. If you're not baptized, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've not gotten in the waters of baptism, you should get baptized. You need to get baptized. No, it won't save you, but this is what we do even before the death of Christ. And so because we don't have many more places in John to talk about baptism, I want to give this one more reminder. You, like the many, many millions of believers before you, should likewise get baptized. In verse 24, you're going to see a parenthetical there uh, put in by the author. He says, for John had not yet been put in prison. He's talking about John the Baptist has not yet been arrested. That's what's going on. Now, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, will give a lot more uh, information on what happens to John the Baptist. It'll tell a lot more about the fate of that, that ancient brother. But here, we just see that point being made. John clearly knows it's going to happen, and he doesn't spend much time telling us about that. But what's a little bit at least significant here is to see that we are watching an overlap between the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. John the Baptist's ministry began before the ministry of Jesus. John the Baptist was born before Jesus. He, in fact, it's said repeatedly, he comes before Jesus will actually say that in his monologue coming, up, coming later in verse 28. I have been sent before him, before Jesus. And so his ministry precedes his. There's at least something we need to see here that's significant. There is a handoff in the ministry between John the Baptist and Jesus. I actually think it's awesome that Jesus doesn't just baptize out in the ocean, maybe the Mediterranean Sea, or go back to Galilee and do all the baptisms there. He goes right next to John where people are seeing John's crew and Jesus' crew, like two tent revivals happening at the same time. And just as you would hope would be the case, people are leaving John the Baptist's tent and going over to Jesus's, and they're trading the, the, the lesser for the greater. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. And why is that helpful and significant? Because we see that these guys are not competitors. There is a single plan of redemption that weaves throughout the entirety of the Bible. And while people in our day will especially try to make it seem like there's a whole bunch of different plans that God tried and failed, and that didn't work, so he's changed. Uh, he was really angry in the Old Testament and finally cooled off in the intertestamental period. And then Jesus came in, Dad, I got this, settle down, and then solves the problem in a different way. None of that's true. There is a perfect plan A, no plan B of redemption woven through the entirety of the Bible going back into eternity before the creation of the world and into the new heavens and the new earth. 
John was carrying this plan of redemption. Jesus took it over like a, like a, like a baton pass and carried on. And this is a beautiful picture of seeing it happen. The plan of redemption here, you see, had no break. But passed from one to the next. So what does John do next? What happens to John after the baton pass happens? He dies. He's done. Thank you, John. Bow and step off stage. And that's exactly what goes down. Verse 25 and 26, we'll see a setup to this conversation. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. That's the picture. But first we see this discussion between a single Jew, some Jewish guy, they were all Jewish, but one of them and John's disciples. And what's this discussion? Well, the word for discussion here is the same for dispute, argument, disagreement. It's used for controversy, okay? So it's, it's, a, it's a debate. It's used, Paul uses that word for debate. So it's not just, hey, let's talk about purification. It was an argument going on. And so something riles up John's disciples to go then and speak to John the Baptist himself. What exactly was the discussion about? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I find it odd to imagine that this would be entirely unrelated to what's going down here. Have no bearing. Oh, by the way, they went to John, but before that there was some random discussion about their favorite color. And then they went to John. I suspect that there's something going on about the purification conversation. And maybe it's a bit of a reminder to us that that's the way that they thought about getting in and out of the water. There's there plenty of water where they were, it said right there. So it's water baptism taking place. The symbol of washing away the newness uh, the newness given by God, the, 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 the sins being washed. Perhaps, without too much speculation, there might have even been an argument when someone looks up and sees, maybe one Jew sees two, two tent revivals taking place for purification. Well, which is better? Do I need to go from his and then to yours or for back? And so, we don't know. Nevertheless, they go to John. And you notice they don't ask him a question here. The way the English translate, it's not a question. He just, they just say, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan. Jesus, obviously, but they don't name him. To whom you bore witness, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Now, the likely exaggeration, all are going to him. I mean, they're still standing with John. All are going to him. And John's answer to their concern have led Christians throughout history to almost uniformly assume that there's something a little bit gritty going on in the hearts of these disciples of John. Perhaps a spirit of jealousy, almost certainly some kind of spiritual competitiveness going on with them a bit. Like, well, they're leaving, us. They're leaving you, they're leaving us. And I think that that's probably right, especially because it would make no sense otherwise for John to answer in the way that he does. They want him to weigh in, and so I'm going to read John's reply to his disciples in entirety. It's the last big discourse of John the Baptist in this gospel. And then we'll go back and look again in a verse or two at a time. John answered, 
A person cannot receive one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. These disciples are comparing themselves to Jesus' disciples. And they're feeling a bit defensive about their ministry. Now, I think in all fairness, we need to be careful to not judge them too harshly. They don't know what we know. They don't even mention his name, even if we suppose that they knew it. They have not witnessed Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. They may have not heard any of his teaching, which he's only done in a couple of cities at this point, up in Galilee, way far from where they are, or in Jerusalem. And these guys are living out in the sticks, probably sleeping under the stars like John. And yet, they're concerned. Is their concern valid at all? Could we give them a little bit of a fair shake on this? They don't know what we know. All they know is that their previously fruitful ministry seems to be losing steam. And those who once came to their trusted rabbi for baptism are now going to another guy. That's all they see. They may even know some of what John said. Oh, yeah, that, we know your guy. Yeah, your guy's a lamb. Our guy eats locusts. You ever heard of Elijah? They, they may have a little bit of a righteous loyalty. They knew that their John, their, their master, their rabbi, was born supernaturally. Do you remember the birth of John? And you remember the birth of Jesus? When Jesus was born, it seems that the people thought that there was infidelity taking place, fornication, and that there was a child born out of wedlock, and then pursued by Herod. He goes to Egypt, and then eventually returns to a new place, not Bethlehem where he was born, back to where his parents were from in Nazareth. People thought poorly, very likely, of Jesus' birth. And it seems that they did not know of the supernatural conditions. This is why the Pharisees would later go, ah, he's from Nazareth. No, he was born in Bethlehem. They don't even know the story. But everybody knew the story of John. It was public. His dad was visited by an angel. And the miracle of his inability to, to speak was evident for all. And a woman well past her childbearing years uh, gives birth to one that was prophesied. Everyone knew of the glorious and wonderful story in the birth of John. That's our master. And here's this Jesus guy. He's not a prophet. He's a carpenter. His dad's a priest. We have to give him a little bit of a pass. And so, there seems to be a bit of competition in their hearts. And in order for us to draw any applications, let's just be clear. You and I are not in the same place. We don't want to draw a straight line to some of these things. But we are open to the same temptations of comparison, jealousy, spiritual competitiveness. And John wisely provides an antidote to this attitude. What's the first thing he offers up 
to kind of just cool it off. What's the first thing he says? Look at what he says here. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. This is where he starts. What a brilliant starting point. What a wise and clarifying start. Guys, do you think all those people who've been coming to us are because of us? Do you think that they see something so attractive in our ministry that that's how we've gotten here? Do you think I'm so wise and you're such good servants that it has drawn people out of their towns to come to where we are? Are you thinking wrongly about that? You must know. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given from heaven. And that's on the receiving end. He could be saying that. But what about the other end? If Jesus and his disciples are now receiving the crowds, that too is under the sovereignty of God's gifting. God is in control. All good things are a gift from heaven. God decides who gets what gift. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul speaks to a similar kind of potential wrong thinking. And he warns, he warns members of a church to think rightly about each other. Remember, God is the one who gives every good gift to people. God is the one who apportions to whom he wills and decides. I'll read a couple of these parts to you in 1 Corinthians 12. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit, all these spiritual gifts, given by one spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So who gets to decide who gets what gifts? God does. The Spirit of God in 1 Corinthians 12, 11. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. A little later in that same chapter, Paul says it this way. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, parts of a local church, each one of them as he chose. He gives the gifts. He arranges the roles. I want you to imagine a, a kid maybe a junior high, high school age kid who um, has been trying out for auditioning for the school musical. And he nervously is awaiting the roles to be listed in the hallway on the, on the sheet. And uh, once they're out, class is over, he comes running out into the hallway and he, he, he runs his finger down the list of names until he finds his own and then across, <gasps> villager number three. Now I'll picture it He can respond in at least two different ways, right? In at least two different ways. First, he says, I'm in. I made it. I get to be on stage. I get to hear applause. I get to be there for the singing fanfare at the end and, and come out and we all hold hands and bow and the lights and the, the, the celebration and the after party and the hard work that'll make it fun to be a part of. And I get to, I get to be up on the team. Woohoo, villager number three. Right? That's one way he could respond. Or he can grumble about the director's decision. You know, the choir teacher who's doubling as the director for this. And he says, she, she's just biased. She doesn't know real talent when she sees it. Or, or, maybe, or maybe, you know, she's still mad at me for forgetting my lines last time. And you can get into that comparison. 
between him and the other person who got the part. And what a waste. You and I can't say this about God. We can't go to God and say, well, he just sometimes is biased. He's partial. Sometimes God makes poor judgments. If only he knew who I was, then he would have given me the role that I deserve, right? We can't judge God like that. He knows perfectly. He decides perfectly. He never messes it up and goes, whoa, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize I should have. This is an obvious mix-up. doesn't happen. It starts there. Paul dealt with a similar issue in his ministry. Did you know he dealt with an issue of, of people like he was proclaiming the gospel, but on a little bit of a different team, okay? They were in another tent, in that tent revival picture of John's disciples and Jesus' disciples I just gave. And he explained in his own heart how he felt about it, and I suspect he's saying that in large part to, to the Philippian church so that they would feel the same. He says this in Philippians 1, 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Two different camps. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Is that not crazy? That's in Paul's heart. I know, I know. Two groups proclaiming Christ. These guys don't like me. How should he think? They're proclaiming Christ. If the point was to proclaim Paul, he should be very upset. But he is pleased. It says that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice because Christ is proclaimed. Okay? Perhaps these disciples of John, if they had thought more clearly, could say the same. Hey, somebody else is out there preaching repentance and faith in God. We need more of these tents. We need more of these gatherings. One of the most uh, encouraging moments that my wife and I had in moving to Utah and preparing to do ministry here, 10 years ago this fall, we reached out to some local pastors here because we had zero contacts for people in Utah and spoke to several who had been doing ministry out here. And I remember one conversation very specifically just continually said, put your church right in the valley where we need more and more. Of them. I, well, isn't, isn't your church kind of near where you're telling us to put that? Yeah, we need more. Put it right next door so we can work together. But we have, we have more lost people in this valley than we have chairs available to put them. I was just, I remember feeling like there was no competition in the spirits of the brothers and sisters who had come before me that we were put in contact with when we came out. It was, just, it was a wonderful, wonderful thing to run into. And so Paul says, as I think John is also saying, God gives, God provides. Every good thing comes from him. He determines who gets what good thing. But there's another problem with comparison. 
It's not just a distrust in God's plan, but the other problem is our own cloudy judgment. To stick with 1 Corinthians 12, what Paul is talking about the body of Christ and the differing members and the differing gifts, he says this, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. Great language. It's so helpful. Why? Does God think those parts less honorable? Do those parts of the body seem to God to be weaker? He says that's our problem. We're going to have a wrong view. We're going to perceive something and get it wrong. God doesn't go, oh, that's just the villager number three. Go get over there with the guy who plays the tree. No. Indispensable is what they're called here. Indispensable. They seem to be weak. They're not weaker. Indispensable. We think they're less honorable. They're not less honorable. God sees clearly where we don't. And so here's these disciples. And not only are they not trusting, hey, God's in control. Not only are they doing that, not only are, are, they, are, they, are they not saying, hey, at least, at least more people hearing truth. They're not doing that. But not only that, they could be, just as we can be at any time, guilty of wrong judgment. We don't know how their judgment might have been towards this, but you and I need to watch our step here. God sees clearly where we don't. I want you to imagine with me, a missionary uh, goes to Uzbekistan and spends 10 years boldly proclaiming the gospel of Christ in that challenging setting. And I want you to imagine another missionary goes to Bolivia and spends 10 years boldly proclaiming the gospel of Christ with all the challenges he'll face there. And at the end of that 10 years, the missionary brother in Uzbekistan reports back to his sending churches and missionary organization, one convert, praise be to God. Pray for this new brother who's given his life to Christ. And then, then, then the other missionary in Bolivia sends word back and says, multiple villages have been baptized and saved, and missionary efforts have gone out from them to a second generation of locals who have come to know the Lord. Question for you all, which missionary is better? You feel it. You know, you know the answer to that, don't you? You wouldn't go, well, he's, he's clearly better. You'd go, well, hold on, we can't judge the fruit of that. We, we don't know. We're just grateful God has done something here and God has done something there and praise God for faithful brothers on the mission field. Did you know that this actually happened in Utah back in the late 1800s? Missionary organizations sent Christians to come out here to try to plant churches, start Christian schools all up and down the Wasatch Front. And tons of people were pouring into this back in the early uh, 1870s, 1880s, and up into the 1890s. Presbyterians and Baptists got together and sent people out here. That's pretty cool. But there came a change uh, right about the early 1900s, right about 1900, about between, within 10 years after. Do you know what the change was? One of the main things, and we actually have the meeting minutes on record for mission, from uh, church planting groups from uh, the, 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 uh, the East, the United States, here, that said $50 sent to India produces many converts. $50 sent to, sent to Utah, no converts. 
And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not judging if they're trying to decide where to send the dollars. But if I were to ask you, who's the better missionary, the one to Uzbekistan or Bolivia, you'd, you'd know. God has to judge. I don't know. We can only hope for faithfulness. We have Bible examples of this, don't we? Imagine this one. Isaiah was a man of God of the Old Testament who preached to thousands of people in Jerusalem. Peter was a man of God in the New Testament who preached to thousands of people in Jerusalem. What was the result of Isaiah's ministry? Full-blown generational rejection, and he was sawn in two. What was the result of Peter's ministry in Jerusalem? He baptized thousands of people in a single day. Who honored God more? And this, this, you know the same answers in your heart, isn't it? Well, they both, they both honored God. The results are left to him. Right? Different conditions, different scenario, different purposes. God would judge. I want to take this out just for a quick moment. I want to take this out of the spiritual camp kind of category of missions and kind of try to land it a little bit more when it comes to our comparison and our perspective on things even outside of just missions. I want you to imagine being in a grocery store line, and, and the line to your right is a mom of three kids. Uh, one kid's in the, in the little, uh, the, maybe a toddler age, little feet kicking out the, the, the cart, and a um, little smile on his face, pacifier in his mouth, and two other kids behind helping mommy put the groceries on the, the conveyor belt. Looking all sweet. And then I want you to imagine another mom of three kids in the left aisle over here, and she's distraught and disheveled. And her toddler is throwing a tantrum and screaming in there and just tears and snot and stink and everything's a mess. And the other two kids are there too and they look distraught and, and their hair is all whack and they've got grumpy faces on. Question for you, which mother is better? I'd hope we'd say the same thing. Well, I, I know what my flesh might think in the moment because I, I know how my perspectives work and I, what I'm viewing here. But in light of what we're talking about, you see, don't you? You'd go, well, I don't know what that mom went through today. I don't know what that mom went through today. I don't know the conditions of what's happening in her life. I don't know the conditions of her life. I, how could I judge that? Well, we seem to see things and assume they're weaker and they're indispensable. Sometimes we think something is less honorable God says we should bestow the greater honor. You and I have faulty reasoning. We have faulty perspectives, faulty vision of these things so much. We cannot see what he sees. This is one of the reasons that performance-based religion falls apart. Many reasons, not least of which, how could we know how to judge the fruit of it? We can't measure what God can measure. We should be slow to judge. Don't compare yourself with others. Don't measure fruit, but endeavor, what? To be faithful. Be faithful. Only God can truly judge that. Faithfulness demands that we trust God gets to choose how to deal with his creation. That's the first thing that these disciples should have learned from this. I think John is getting at with them. God gives all the gifts. He knows what's going down. Trust in him. Leave it up to him. Don't look and judge the fruitfulness of our ministry by how many people are still in our tent. God knows how to judge this. Verse 28, he continues on. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. 
John knows who he is, and he knows who he isn't. I know what I've been sent to do, and I know what I've not been sent to do. I know myself. I know what God wants for me, and it's not what Jesus is going to do. It's what I've been called to do. You and I are not the hero of the story. We're not the star role in the play. We're not the superstar in the game. We are not the center of the universe, and neither is John, and he knows it. He knows it. And we must, like John, really get this into our mind. I'm not Jesus. I'm not the supreme center of all things. The world ought not revolve around me. Listen, if, if they saw Jesus' crowd coming to them, then they should be concerned. Whoa, stop, stop. Go back that way, right? The flow should go one direction. But you and I live in a day where the cult of self-identity is supreme, supreme. It's crazy to think. We look out and see a sea of moral relativism in almost every category except one's self-determined identity. That's the absolute. Everything's relative except what someone would say about themselves. It's the one thing that cannot be wrong, even if they change their mind. But our cure to this wrong thinking is to remember who we are and who we aren't. Like John says, I'm not the Christ. I've been sent before him. He gives a great illustration that comes next. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now, just a cool thing I found in my studies of this in that day in Israel, uh, the people would have had a similar kind of marriage or, or wedding types of roles as we have today with a, with a, a, a best man and a, bride's, a, a maid of honor. And it was one of the responsibilities of the friend of the bridegroom, the best man. He actually was the one who would walk the bride down the aisle, so to speak. They wouldn't have an aisle like we do in the same way. But you know how dad usually walks the bride down the aisle and gives her away? That would actually be the responsibility of the friend of the groom, the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom. And that's who John is saying he is. He knows who he is. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. He's not standing there reluctantly saying, man, I wish I had the bride. No, he rejoices. He marches her down the aisle. He hands her off to the groom and then he bows out. He's done. My part's finished, sits down and then just with joy on his face, enjoys the rest of the ceremony and the reception and goes on happily. His part is done. That's John. That's what he's saying. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Hey, disciples, are you worried? Are you worried that I would be upset by this? Do you think that as I see people leave, I'll go, well, time to reluctantly fade into the sunset? No, he's like, ah, oh, my work is done. Joy of mine is now complete. You know, I couldn't help but come to mind and saw, saw some kind of reference to this in some of my commentary studies on this. The 10th commandment says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And that's perfect. That's, that's what's going on here. John is not saying, yeah, yeah, I should have more people come to me. The bride of Christ should come to me. No. He goes, I rejoice when I see the people of God go to their groom. 
you and I should take great joy in Christ getting what he deserves. There's no room for self-serving in the Christian life. None. Like the basketball player in the, in the final minutes of, the, of the, the championship game, seconds left, score tied, he makes his way down the court, and he passes the ball to his teammate who scores the win. And everybody jumps in the, in the stands and dives onto the court and the hats and the towels and everything goes up in the air and the roar fills the place. And, and, and the winners all rejoice and rejoice and rejoice. And then you see the team, the other team, fall to their knees. We lost. And head in the hands. Can you imagine the one who threw the assist, who passed the ball to the teammate, being one of those on the ground holding his head? No, I should have scored. You and I would say, what a fool. Get up, celebrate, rejoice, join in the celebration. You got to be on the team. You got to pass the assist. Revel in the goodness that you get to see and put that man on your shoulders also. That's what we would want. That's, That's the joy, the joy in being part of the team. Not being the only recipient of grace, of, 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 of glory, rather. If you, as a believer, are lacking joy in your life, and this is a struggle for you, present, past, you have a concern about it in the future, if that's you, this may be a huge reason why. Listen, Jesus has won. Jesus is winning. And even when you feel like you're not, even when you feel defeated and you feel all broken down, and you, you, to use the John's disciples example here, what you have been pouring your life and energy into starts to go to somebody else. If that's you in this season of life, you must be reminded, Christ winning it's not for me to score it's not for my revival tent to grow it's not for my master John to get something special it's for the glory of Christ John is overjoyed to pass the ball to Jesus overjoyed to pass the ball story came to mind this last week of I brought this up here not not long ago at the church here. I, I probably preach on this in the, in the near future. Second Kings 5 tells us the story about Naaman, the Syrian general who gets leprosy, hears about Elisha, and comes to get healed. And God heals him, okay? That's the story. And he goes to Elisha's house afterward to say thank you. And he wants to just, he wants to just, uh, just throw gifts on him. Can I please pay you for this wonderful service? And what does Elisha say to him? He goes, no. Keep your gifts. They're not mine. I don't deserve anything. And it actually says in the text, Naaman pressures him. He pushes, he goes, no, no, please, please. I want to take these gifts. And Elisha resists, he refuses, no. You know, and the way that God worked out that miracle for the record was that he didn't even enter Elisha's house. He didn't even do any, Elisha didn't like come and rub dirt on him and, you know, do some special something in his presence and shake him. And then all of a sudden the leprosy goes away. If you remember that story, he says, hey, go miles away to another state and just get in some water. You do it yourself, God will heal you. So it wasn't even something that could even be seen as Elisha doing it. God did this perfectly. And the guy shows back up and Elisha's like, this is not my doing. God did this. 
Give glory to him. And the man says, yes, I will. All glory to God. And you know what the one request Naaman asks for? Can I please get some loads of dirt to take with me so that when I get back home, I can make, an, uh, I can make a, a mound of this dirt so that when I worship and praise the one true God of heaven, I can stand on that soil because the God of Israel is my God. That's what he says. You want dirt. Sure, take all the dirt you want. Take it off of that pile. And Naaman leaves. I was impacted thinking about how that wasn't the end of this beautiful story because it got ugly quick. There was a servant in Elisha's house by the name of Gehazi. And Gehazi sees Naaman with all of his treasures still on his cart heading over the horizon. And Gehazi goes and chases him down. He knows what happens and he actually lies. He says, oh, hey, uh, we got some visitors. Turns out we need your money anyway. And Naaman, still with a full, generous heart, he goes, what do you need? Gehazi gives him, give me a, give me a talent of silver and some clothes. And Naaman doubles it. He's so, Jesus, he's filled with the, with the love and joy of God, and he gives him, double it. And Gehazi takes it back and runs into Elisha, who rebukes him for that wickedness. Now, here's, here's, here's the point. Gehazi, he wanted personal gain. He wanted to benefit personally, materially, from that ministry. But compare that with Elisha. He just wanted all glory to Christ, all glory to God. As we look at that, we must see and be, I want to be the Elisha. I want to be the, I don't need any of your stuff. I don't need any reward from humankind. I don't need any acclaim and accommodation, uh, accolades and attaboys, girls. I want to know that that Christ is being honored. All glory be to him and not to us. And the last thing that John says here, that is one of the most beautiful things I think that probably ever came off of John's lips. He must increase, I must decrease. John knew exactly who he was. And so he was filled with delight to be able to do his part, just his part. He not only was made to be a voice in the wilderness, but to pass the ministry to the Savior and watch his ministry decrease as Christ increased. He did not leave behind any earthly monuments. No children, no land, no possessions, no books. No enduring following uniquely to him. Everything that he had been given fruit in went to Christ. He did what he was supposed to do. He lived for Christ and then died. What a glorious life. Galatians 2.20 the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you're a believer today, this is you. You have put to death the old man. You put on the new. And you now live and walk in Christ. If you're not a believer today, this is what we want for you. We want for you to reject, refute, get rid of, cast off the self. We want for you to refuse the, 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 the modern obsession with the self. And to cast it out and repent of it and turn in faith to Jesus Christ who hung on a cross because of his love for you. That you can have your sins forgiven, wiped out, overwhelmed. And that by believing in him, you too can have eternal life. And just as he was raised to new life, 
You too can be raised as a, as a crucified one who was crucified with Christ, raised to new life, and someday also have eternal life with him. You need to surrender yourself to Jesus. This is the gospel call. Believe on him and have eternal life. You may know we celebrate Jesus' birthday on December 25th. The church in history has referenced John the Baptist's birthday as June 25th. They see six months apart. The Bible says six months, and so they go there, June 25th. But it's been significant for believers to say, well, man, Jesus' birthday takes place at or near the summer solstice, uh, the winter solstice, just as John's birthday takes place near the winter sol- summer solstice, which is perfect. What a great cosmic illustration. Because John was born on the brightest, longest day of the year, and every day thereafter, it got darker and darker and darker and decreased and decreased and decreased and decreased until Christ, and then it increased, 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 increased. And so believers have reveled in that symbol that they see even in the stars when we think about John and Jesus' birthday. What a great illustration. What a great way to think. Is your life like this? Do you think that of yourself? Is your plan and your hope in your life that as you are further sanctified, further matured, further growing in holiness, that you will gain greater benefit in the process? Or is your highest goal, your highest aim, the glory to Christ that more of what I do, more of how I think, more of how I operate be to his glory and not to my own? That's the challenge that we live with to magnify Christ even more than self. Let's pray. Lord, you are kind and good to us. You have been patient with us, even when we have not lived. And I know presently we struggle all the time thinking selfishly. Lord, I am certain that there are many ways that we think with comparison, uh, jealousy. We think with wrong thinking about uh, how you designed for us to fit into your church. Oh, goodness, Lord, this happens all the time to us. And we need to align ourselves to these things just like John's disciples. Lord, thank you for your gentle encouragement, your, your correction in these things. Please help us to be a kind of people that seek the glory of Christ more than anything else and certainly more than our own praise. And we pray this in Jesus' good and holy name. Amen.